All right, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And today's title of this message is The Humiliation of Our King. So let me start with verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection... There was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Church, let's pray. Dear Lord, dear Lord Jesus, we're praying to you, the same one we just read about right here. You are alive. And we ask this morning that your words would fall afresh upon us. Oh Lord, for most of us, we're covering territory and scripture that we'd be very familiar with. But Lord, there can be a danger in familiarity. We can read it again and not see. But Lord, we ask that we would see once again you and the gospel, for it is multifaceted. You are multifaceted, Lord. We pray that you would help us see the multifaceted, full orb glory of the gospel. Show us things we have not yet seen. Show us things we have seen, but bring it to our minds and deliver to our hearts afresh again this morning. That we'd be amazed at you, O Savior, at what you've done for us, your children, for all those who call upon your name. Amen. Well, Professor Bruce Shelley begins his volume on church history with this one very surprising 
and stunning sentence. I read it about 20 years ago, and I still remember it. Quote, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Church, the truth set forth in that one sentence that sets Christianity apart from all other faiths. Islam, they've adopted as their emblem, right, the crescent, the crescent moon, representing sovereignty. Judaism has adopted or taken the shield or star of David, right, representing the Davidic covenant and their belief in the yet-to-come Messiah. Buddhism has chosen the lotus flower, depicting that cycle of birth and death. And then there's Christianity. Christianity has chosen the cross. Perhaps the cruelest and most shameful form of execution known to mankind. In modern day terms, this would be like a sports team wearing prison jumpsuits as its uniform and adopting an electric chair as its motto, as its mascot or emblem. Turn on the TV today. If you like football, watch little football. I can guarantee as you watch, you will not see a football helmet with an electric chair decal on it. Church, this is radical. Christianity is radical. The only major religion to have its central event, the humiliation of its God. And it's this humiliation which is front and central this morning in Christ's silence, in Christ's suffering as he's led to the cross. Even the verbs used in the passage we just read speak of this humiliation. Back to verse one. We read the elders and scribes, the council, they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him. They handed him over to Pilate. Verse 15, it was Pilate who delivered him to be crucified. Verse 20, it's the soldiers who led him out to be crucified. The king of the Jews, he's not leading. He's being led, handed over to be crucified. The king of the Jews is not speaking, but he's silent as to the charges made against him. The king of the Jews in this passage is not condemning criminals. It's a king would do. No, he's being condemned as a criminal in the place of a criminal. The king of the Jews is not being worshipped, but being whipped and being mocked. In one sense, all that we've just read, let's admit it, it's preposterous. This stuff cannot be made up. Or if it would be made up, it wouldn't be made up in this way. See, the whole of Christianity was just a make-believe, fabricated, woven tale. There is no way that this is how the story of Jesus, the protagonist and the hero, would go down. No way. Not a chance. You've seen too many Marvel comics or too many superhero movies to know that. Oh, Jesus might get in a little trouble if I were fabricating this story. But you know, in the end, he'll either get rescued by his superhero friends, right? Or he'll 
through his superior strength or wit, execrate himself from death, impending death, and live. But by the way, if you've missed the last two weeks here at Palm Vista, the friends of Jesus, oh, they fled. They betrayed him. They've denied him. There's no friend, by the way, or superhero in the wings here, okay? Jesus is it. But Jesus is never rescued. He does not extricate himself from impending death nor humiliation when he has the chance. Why? Because Jesus is the one who has come to do the rescuing by his shameful, humiliating death on a cross. And so we are delivered to the text this morning knowing that all that we said in the Gospel of Mark, that Christ is not being delivered over as a mere victim of human cunning or wickedness. No, Christ is being delivered up according to God's own purposes to rescue his very perpetrators. And that includes you and me. You see, that which we're reading this morning, in one sense, should stun us. It should amaze us. It should make us feel uncomfortable. But as I prayed, I think you're aware, sometimes that which we're so familiar with and the events thereof, can just lose their shock value, can't they? But my prayer this morning for you and me is that we would be amazed once again, Christian. And for some of you, that you would be amazed for the very first time by the stunning humiliation of our, sta- of our Savior and the grace of our King Jesus. Let's go to point one. Speaking of this humiliation, point one, our King's silence. Verses one through five. That's how I'll break it down. Notice that it is now morning in our text, in our passage, Jesus, as a way of a reminder, has just been interrogated, beaten, spit upon by the Jewish council and leaders, and he has not slept all night. And now he's being delivered over to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And Pilate asked Jesus, picking up in verse 2, this question, Are you the king of the Jews? And he, that's Jesus, answered him, You've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Well, first of all, why would Pilate even ask, Are you the king of the Jews? Why would he ask that in the first place? Well, to answer this, we must understand that the elders and scribes, the Jewish council, they knew full well that their charges against Christ the night before, a blasphemy, that he claimed to be the Messiah and Son of God, that wasn't going to go down before a Roman magistrate. You see, the Romans cared little about internal Jewish religious disputes. They didn't. So the Jewish leaders cunningly craft their objection into a civil charge before Pilate. You get that? So the charge to Pilate, their charge against Jesus, was not that he claimed to be the Messiah, Son of God, but rather the political equivalent, that he was in fact claiming to be a king, the king of the Jews. 
Oh, the Jews knew full well, didn't they, that this would get Pilate's attention. Because it was his job as governor. He was brought in during the feast time to keep the peace. They had brooked no rival, entertained no rival to Caesar. That was his job. And they also knew by delivering him over to Pilate and charging him to be a king, they were charging him of treason. And that was a capital crime. Crucifixion, if found guilty. Don't go there, but we read back in Matthew 23 that the Jews accused Jesus by saying this. We're filling in the narrative here from Mark 15. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus point point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And at first blush, Christ's answer seems a little perplexing, doesn't it? You have said so. Well, what did Jesus mean by this response? In essence, he seems to be affirming what Pilate seems to be confessing. See, the question in verse 2 literally reads in the Greek, you are the king of the Jews. Or maybe an implied question, you are the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, yeah, you have said so. In other words, Pilate, you just confessed it. Think about it. Consider what you're saying. Do you believe it? To quote Jesus before Pilate has told in John 18, just flung out this narrative for us. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. What's he saying? Yeah. Jesus is saying, yeah, I am a king. But it's not the political kind which Pilate was thinking about. Jesus was no Caesar. Jesus is the king of a spiritual kingdom which Pilate knew nothing about. A kingdom which has no political borders nor mock trials. And after more charges are made against the king Jesus, Pilate asks again for Christ's response. And Jesus makes none. And we read in verse 5, Pilate was amazed. Why? Because Pilate believed he had the power to acquit or condemn Jesus. John 19.10, Pilate asks, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? I love Christ's answer to Pilate. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus, oh, he knew. He knew who was in control. And Jesus remained silent. Friends, we ought to be amazed too. But not for the reasons which Pilate was amazed. He was amazed because he saw a way out for Jesus in this predicament. But Jesus did not see a way out because Jesus was not looking for a way out. He was looking to the cross, not to be released from death, but to redeem you and me by his death, to die in our place. 
as our substitute. And that point is illustrated by our second point. The first, our king's silent. The second, our king's substitution. Verses 6 through 15a. As in this whole narrative, the account, this account of Barabbas is filled with irony that is not to be missed. Pilate, in his attempt to free Jesus, as if King Jesus needed his help to be freed, he offers to release one prisoner. That was the custom during the Passover feast. So Pilate offers to release Jesus, the king of the Jews. But the crowds don't take the bait, but rather being stirred up by the chief priests, ask for the release of Barabbas. Who was Barabbas? We know from verse 7 in our text, he was a murderer, an insurrectionist. But the Jews, they weren't motivated here by justice, but by jealousy. As Pilate had perceived in verse 10, it was envy. They wanted Jesus dead. When Pilate asks what he should do with the innocent Jesus, the crowds respond, crucify him. Ironically, the crowd chooses Barabbas. What Barabbas means? Son of the father. Abba, Abbas, son of the father. They choose Barabbas, son of the father, over Jesus, the true son of the father, our father God. They choose Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the would-be political savior of Israel, over Jesus, the true savior, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. And Pilate, wanting to pacify the crowd, keep the peace, releases Barabbas, the guilty, and condemns Jesus, the innocent, to death to be crucified. We know that Christ was later crucified with two criminals, right? One on his right and one on his left. Well, who was the third criminal? It should have been Barabbas. But instead, it was Christ, right there in the middle. All of this anticipating was about to occur at the cross, where it says in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous as our substitute. I just want to read from Isaiah 53. I apologize to the interpretation team. This is not on the notes here nor on the screen, but just want to read, thought to read this. Isaiah 53, Christ fulfilling this ancient prophecy of the suffering servant. I just want to read verses four through six of Isaiah 53 to see our king's substitution his substitutionary work on our behalf. We read from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Do you see it? Christ died in the place of Barabbas, the unrighteous. But not just that. He died in your place. He died in my place for all the unrighteous, those who call upon him. And he did it as our substitute. See, it's one thing to be falsely accused. That he was. It's even another to be falsely accused and condemned while the guilty go free. But none of that compares, in one sense, to the humiliation that Christ is now about to endure. And it should amaze us. But in a strange way, it ought to comfort us as well. Let us look now to the third point. Our Christ, excuse me, our king's suffering and shame. Verses 15b to the end of our text, verse 20. So Pilate, verse 15, the second half there. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Here it is. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Well, Mark has just mentioned of the scourging, the whipping of Jesus that he endured. I don't want to gloss over this part of Christ's suffering and shame, but neither do I want to embellish this for any emotional gains. I'm just going to read directly from the ESV study Bible regarding Christ's scourging. Quote, Roman, excuse me, Roman flogging was a horrifically cruel punishment. Those condemned to it were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal, which tore through skin and tissue, often exposing bones and intestines. In many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. The Romans scourged Jesus nearly to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown. Our great king, instead of being worshipped, was grotesquely whipped almost to death. Yet that's not, that's not the part of the narrative which Mark, the author here of the Gospel of Mark, focuses on. He spends actually the last five verses, 16 through 20, speaking not of the pain of Jesus, but of the shame, the humiliation which our king endured before a battalion. A battalion's roughly 600 soldiers. And this wasn't the first time Christ had endured such shame. If you remember last week in Mark 14, it was before the Jewish council, right? And the guards that Jesus was mocked for his claim of divinity. They said, oh, prophesy, you divine one. Now before the Romans, it is his kingly status that is being ridiculed as he is dressed up and mocked, given a mock-up robe, king's robe, crown and scepter, as the soldiers salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Once again, we see the irony. Jesus, the true king, wearing a crown of thorns that was probably not put there so much for the pain, but the mocking amusement for the soldiers. 
See, little did they realize this king was going to the cross to bear the divine curse of sin. If you recall way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, with the fall of man, we read in Genesis 3, verse 17 and 18, that as a result of sin, the ground was cursed, producing what? Thorns and thistles. To quote Matthew Henry here, he, that's Jesus, wore the crown of thorns, the curse of sin, which we deserved, that we might wear the crown of glory, which he merited. But all this still leaves us with at least one pressing question in my mind, and maybe yours as well. Why the shame? Why the humiliation of our great king? Couldn't Christ have gone to the cross without such repeated humiliation and still die for the sins of his people? Couldn't Christ have been executed in a more humane and dignified way as opposed to crucifixion? You understand, crucifixion was chosen for criminals, not just because of the horrific pain, but also because of the public shame, the shame of being nailed naked to a beam for all to see as the subject is or slowly asphyxiates as he writhes and heaves in pain. Why the mocking? Why the ridicule? Why the shameful treatment? Why this shameful death? Have you thought about it? Let me propose this. And now we're honing in, I believe, in the application, the payload of this entire sermon for you and for me. Christ did not die just to remove God's anger and wrath. We've been taught well, I think, here. Oh, yes, he did, to satisfy, to appease God's wrath that we deserve for our rebellion against God. God did die, yes, to remove God's wrath upon us. But Christ died to remove our shame as well the shame and humiliation of our sin. When I say shame, I'm talking about the emotional pain we feel over past sinful behavior. Shame is something that can be brought on by our own sinful actions. It's also something that can be imposed upon us by others as well. We can be put to shame when our sin is exposed or made known by others and their contempt for our sin can also cause us much shame. Even as believers, there are sins of our past that we just look back on and just cringe. A moment of weakness or years of habitual, ugly, gross, unadulterated sin And you still remember it. Even worse, there's others who still bring it up. You feel it. You feel dirty. You feel slimed. You feel ashamed. I think many of us can relate to Peter in the story as we read last week. When Peter denied Christ for the third time, the rooster crowed and Christ looked at him squarely in the eyes. And then we read these sobering, 
penetrating words. And he, that's Peter, broke down and wept. Church, that's guilt and that's shame. But hear this. Christ was humiliated in the events leading up to the cross. Christ suffered humiliation on the cross. And Christ bore our shame on the cross. He took our sin and absorbed our shame. Listen to these amazing words from Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that was put before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame of the cross. And may I add the events leading up to it. Despise means that the shame and humiliation that he would endure would not hinder him, would not defeat him in his mission to go to the cross as our great king. He scorned the shame. He thought of it as nothing in light of the salvation it would bring and the shame it would remove from all those who place their saving trust in him. Christ bore our rightful shame. Remember the king's substitutionary role. So that, to quote Romans 9, verse 33, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For it is Christ who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him at the cross. Colossians 2.15. Oh, what does this mean, church, for us? For some believers here, I suspect there may still be unwarranted shame over sin long forgiven. And Christ's message to you this morning is this. I didn't just endure the pain of the cross for you. I endured the pain, excuse me, and the shame and the humiliation of it. Not so you would remain in your shame or self-loathing. No, so you would be put to shame no longer. So that you might be free. Yes, free even today. Perhaps you still look back on that which tempts you to shame. And you're still reliving it. You're still retelling it. But you're doing it in a way in which there's no reference to what Christ has done on your behalf. So you you look back, you remember in those darkest times, in the quiet of the night, and you still feel the same sorrow, the same guilt, and the same shame. You retell it, you were living in your mind. It's like you were living in a first person present. Not, I was this, but I am. I'm still dirty. I'm still shamed. And you feel it. I believe it's liberation for you today if you're in Christ Jesus. If you have repented of your sin, he's come to pay the penalty for your sin and to absorb the shame of that sin as well. Numerous times I've heard professing Christians say, well, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Speaking of that big sin, whatever it is that you, he, she has committed and the attendant shame that comes with it. If that is you, please take a long look 
at the suffering and humiliation that Christ silently and willingly endured for you in your place. Look at the wrath God bore on the cross, but also look at his nakedness and humiliation as well. And may you, may I never conclude, not good enough. That's what we're saying. We say, I cannot forgive myself what God through Christ has already forgiven and covered. You see, persistent shame, church, is a form of persistent unbelief in the sufficiency of the cross. Persistent shame may sound like humility, but it is sin. It's taking our own reed and striking Christ, our King, one more time. It's adding our spittle to the spit which flew in his face. It's saying Christ's perfect sacrifice and suffering wasn't enough for me. And then for others, you may still feel shame, but for different reasons. And that's not all bad. John Enzor, he's been here at Paul Vista, founder of Heartbeat of Miami Pregnancy Clinics. He's dealt a lot with shame in his work. He writes in his book, The Great Work of the Gospel, about the medicinal value of shame. To quote, It is good to make a distinction between things that happened long ago that have been set right as far as is possible and things that we do in the ongoing struggle against sin that we have persistently refused to admit responsibility for. In the first that I was just addressing, we honor God by accepting the cleansing, cleaning of our conscience. In the latter, we honor God by being ashamed of ourselves and turning away from our present sins to the grace of God. Perhaps for some of you, persistent guilt and shame is that red light on your vehicle's dashboard. It's there and it's not going away. So you may confess your sin, come clean before your king, repent, turn from your sin, and turn to your savior and be totally, completely, once and for all, cleansed. No more high-grade guilt, no more low-grade guilt. No more dirt, no more slime, no more cover-ups, no more lies, no more hypocrisy, no more pretending. Freedom, total freedom, total forgiveness, complete cleansing. What's that worth to you this morning? It was worth Christ. Christ, our King's complete humiliation, going to the cross in silence as our substitute and suffering and shame. That's how much it was worth, church. So you would feel shame no more. So if that red light is still blinking and you haven't owned up, you haven't come to your Savior. We do this morning. Come to Jesus. Oh, he knows pain. He knows shame. He bore it for you.
I want to end with a quote that we began with this morning. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. It's true. Oh, we don't hide that. No, we do. We boast in it. Let's live in the good of it. And the final point, the humiliation of our king means shame no more. The humiliation of our king means shame no more. Let's pray and I'd like to invite the worship team to come on up for a final song. It's a sing about God, our refuge. Oh, dear Lord, by your spirit, and that the work that was accomplished at the cross, Jesus Christ, I ask that you would, you bring healing this morning to those who have yet been forgiven. Do you see that you're extending your arms, your nail-scarred hands this morning to them? I pray that those would come, come to you, the one who took their sin and absorbed their shame and no freedom. For the rest of us this morning who know you, O Christ, but have long suffered with shame, the thoughts of the past that won't go away and the feelings that attend it, would you have mercy this morning? Would you pour out your grace and would your grace cover those sins, that that they may not know it in their minds, but they would feel it, experientially know it, even as we sing now, as we sing that in Christ there is no shame. So Lord, I pray that you would do your work right now, reinforce this truth to our hearts. Oh Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand, let's sing. Our God, our refuge.